Welcome, and thank you for joining us for Neuroscience CME Journal Club. The goal of each journal club is to evaluate the latest evidence in clinical literature and translate that evidence into improvements in the care of patients. This continuing education activity is co-sponsored by Indiana University School of Medicine and by CME Outfitters, LLC. This activity is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Pfizer, Incorporated. This activity is titled Management of Multiple Sclerosis, Part 1 of 2, Differential Diagnosis, a Consensus Approach. Our guest host for today's activity is Dr. Aaron Miller. Dr. Miller is a professor of neurology and medical director at the Corinne Goldsmith Dickinson Center for Multiple Sclerosis at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York, New York. Dr. Miller has disclosed that he receives grant and research support from Accorda Therapeutics, Genentech Incorporated, Genzyme Corporation, Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation, Santa Fe Aventis, and Teva Pharmaceuticals. He serves as a consultant to Accorda Therapeutics, Biogen IDEC, Daiichi Senko, EMD Serono Incorporated, GlaxoSmithKline, Merck Serono, Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation, Ono Pharmaceutical Company Limited, Santa Fe Aventis, and Teva Pharmaceuticals. He serves on the speakers bureaus of Biogen IDEC, EMD Serono Incorporated, Pfizer Incorporated, and Teva Pharmaceuticals. Today's featured author is Dr. Fred D. Lublin. Dr. Loveland is the Saunders Family Professor of Neurology and Director at the Corinne Goldsmith Dickinson Center for Multiple Sclerosis at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York, New York. Dr. Loveland has disclosed that he receives grant and research support from Accorda Therapeutics, Biogen IDEC, Genentech Incorporated, Genzyme Corporation, Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation, Santa Fe Aventis, and Teva Neuroscience Incorporated. He serves as a consultant too or on the advisory board of Accorda Therapeutics, Actelion Pharmaceuticals Limited, Allozyne Incorporated, Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals, Biogen IDEX, BioMS Medical Corporation, EMD Serono Incorporated, Genentech Incorporated, GenMab, Medicinova Incorporated, Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation, Pfizer Incorporated, QuestCore Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Santa Fe Aventis, and Teva Neuroscience Incorporated. He serves on the speakers bureaus of EMD Serono Incorporated, Pfizer Incorporated, and Teva Neuroscience Incorporated. He owns stock in Cognition Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. Dr. Loveland has disclosed that he may discuss unapproved agents that are in the MS developmental pipeline without any recommendation on their use. Disclosures of faculty financial relationships and full biographical profiles can be found at neurosciencecme.com forward slash 426. The faculty have been informed of their responsibility to disclose to the audience if they will be discussing off-label or investigational uses of products or devices. Over the next hour, Dr. Miller and Dr. Loveland will be discussing and taking questions regarding an article in Multiple Sclerosis titled, Differential Diagnosis of Suspected Multiple Sclerosis, a Consensus Approach. At the end of the CE activity, participants should be able to utilize consensus-based guidelines in determining a more accurate differential diagnosis of MS. To receive CE credit for this activity, you must complete the post-test and evaluation at neurosciencecme.com forward slash test. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's Journal Club. Hello. It is my pleasure to welcome you to today's Neuroscience CME Journal Club. I am Dr. Aaron Miller, the Medical Director at the Corinne Goldsmith Dickinson Center for Multiple Sclerosis 
at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. I'm excited to be the moderator for this Neuroscience CME Journal Club series on the subject of differential diagnosis of suspected multiple sclerosis, a consensus approach. I'm joined today by my colleague, Dr. Fred Lublin. Dr. Lublin is the director of the Corinne Goldsmith Dickinson Center for Multiple Sclerosis at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. And he is one of the authors on the paper, Differential Diagnosis of Suspected Multiple Sclerosis, a Consensus Approach. Welcome, Dr. Lublin, and perhaps you can begin by summarizing the article for us. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you for the introduction. Uh, the article we're going to discuss, Differential Diagnosis of Suspected Multiple Sclerosis, a Consensus Approach, grew out of uh, deliberations uh, that occurred at the last meeting of the International Panel for Developing the guidelines for diagnosing multiple sclerosis. It was recognized that all modern diagnostic criteria for multiple sclerosis had included the caveat that there be no better diagnosis without expanding on that any further. In addition, it was noted that the diagnostic criteria for multiple sclerosis were specific to diagnosing multiple sclerosis. That is, they were designed to provide a level of comfort or security as to how likely the diagnosis was to be correct and provide both clinical and paraclinical guidelines for making that diagnosis. But it was recognized that the criteria did not distinguish multiple sclerosis from other diseases that could mimic it. Hence, the committee decided to convene another panel to develop guidelines for the differential diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, a bit more of a challenge than just developing the criteria for diagnosing multiple sclerosis. This panel convened in 2007 and included 18 international experts on the diagnostic issues around multiple sclerosis and uh, developed a process for trying to come up with guidelines. And in doing this, uh, they uh, split into three groups. One group dealt with the issues of alternative diagnoses uh, that were not inflammatory demyelinating diseases. The second group dealt with the issue of the clinically isolated syndrome, which is the initial tech of what would likely turn out to be multiple sclerosis. And the third group dealt with differentiating multiple sclerosis from other idiopathic inflammatory demyelinating diseases. Then the group met as a whole after going through a consensus process and developed the final document, which we now have and was published in the journal Multiple Sclerosis uh, in late 2008. The initial aspect of the process is determined when someone comes in with symptoms and signs that are consistent with an inflammatory uh, demyelinating disease such as multiple sclerosis is to develop an algorithm and the algorithm they present in the paper first develops ways of differentiating multiple sclerosis and other demyelinating diseases from non-demyelinating syndromes uh, usually those affecting the central nervous system, but not e exclusively. To accomplish that first task, the panel developed a table of red flags. 
And there are 79 red flags that are mentioned, and these are both clinical and MRI red flags. And the flags are rated as to whether they are major, intermediate, or minor red flags. Major red flags carrying more weight and having gone through a process of consensus development uh, scored the highest in terms of individuals saying, if you see this, you should be concerned that there's another diagnosis going on. Um, minor red flags were those in which there was uh, less consensus as to the importance of that particular example, and intermediate scored in between the two. And the table provides people with a way of looking at something and saying, does this fit, does it not fit? Uh, for example, one of the major red flags was bone lesions. And if one sees bone lesions during the workup of an individual where you're considering multiple sclerosis, that would be a major red flag and direct you toward think, thinking of things like uh, histiocytosis. Similarly, lung involvement might make one think more towards sarcoidosis. So you have this list of red flags that helps one exclude non-demyelinating syndromes. Once one has accomplished that, then one's looking at either a classic idiopathic inflammatory demyelinating disease or some other alternative diagnosis. Of the inflammatory demyelinating diseases, one then looks towards multiple sclerosis, if that is the commonest of the inflammatory demyelinating diseases, or towards uh, things like neuromyelitis optica or acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, um, two conditions that the paper spends a lot of time on, and then an unclassified group, uh, things such as Ballows and Marburgs and other inflammatory demyelinating diseases that are less well classified. There are tables provided in the paper for defining neuromyelitis optica according to the latest criteria, which is of some importance because those criteria have been changing over the last several years as we learn more and more about that particular condition. And also criteria for diagnosing acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, also um, a bit of a moving target as more is learned from that, especially um, from the uh, pediatric population. And then in addition, the panel provides uh, a long discussion of the clinically isolated syndrome, including mentioning the fact that the term itself um, is a bit inelegant and confusing because it has no pathologic specificity, but the term has, has stayed and so we've used it in this paper. And they divide the clinically isolated syndrome up into whether it has a monofocal or multifocal onset that is involvement of one area of the nervous system or multiple areas of the nervous system. But in all instances, it's considered the first episode of an inflammatory demyelinating event with the exception of what was called uh, clinically isolated syndrome type 5 where the initial event is actually picked up on an MRI scan showing changes in the central nervous system that are suspicious for multiple sclerosis, uh, although the individual had not had any clinical events. And so in, in summary, what we have here is a paper to assist clinicians in developing a differential diagnosis of an individual who comes in in which they're suspicious that they may have multiple sclerosis 
or one of the other uh, idiopathic inflammatory demyelinating diseases, and it helps guide the process of excluding other non-demyelinating diseases, and then once the decision is made that it is a demyelinating disease, distinguishing between the several uh, alternative possibilities of inflammatory demyelinating diseases. The process itself uh, is consensus-driven largely based on the available literature and on the consensus and, and weighting of these individual uh, red flags by the group. And so the authors uh, rightly point out at the end that much of what's reported here should be looked at prospectively uh, in a more organized way to try and develop uh, and improve upon the guidelines provided here. But I think it's a very good first start and should serve clinicians well. Well, thank you very much for that um, clear summary. But maybe we could clarify for the audience a little bit more about the methodology for the determination of these red flags. Could, could you be a little bit more specific about how the consensus was reached in determining whether something would be regarded as, say, a major red flag, an intermediate red flag, or a minor red flag? So to, to rate the red flags, there was a table developed of 79 red flags that were thought to be of some importance. The table was then rated independently by six of the subgroup members uh, that were dealing with the uh, red flag portion of the panel. And they rated them on a scale of one to five to classify them as to whether they were major, meaning a, a score of four to five, or intermediate or minor, which would be a rating of one to two. And then they were summed, um, and the determination as to whether they were major were those who had a total score of 24 or greater, and no more than one individual with a score of three. Minor was a total score of 12 or less, uh, with not more than one individual with a score of three. And intermediate red flags mostly indicated a lack of agreement among the raters and had a total score from 13 to 23, with more than one individual giving it a rating of three. I noticed that, that some things that we have commonly thought about MS, for example, age of onset uh, over the age of 50, is regarded by the panel as a minor red flag. What should we do with the kinds of information that we see that it gets a score in the minor red flag area? Well, the minor red flags are ones that should make you think about the diagnostic issue uh, to make sure that you're not missing something else. This, is, this was the essence of the caveat, no better diagnosis. And so minor or minor, the individuals couldn't agree on the importance, and the one you pick out uh, is an important one to consider because we know that MS occurs in individuals uh, above the age of 50, but we also know that we should have caution in making the diagnosis and make sure that we have the supporting information to confirm it and, importantly, to exclude other confounds. It sounds then as if a minor red flag is really something to make uh, the clinician do a double take and, and to think about whether this really is the right diagnosis, but really shouldn't say, whoa, throw this out, this is not a possibility. That, that's correct, but all of the red flags are just flags to make you stop and think for a minute, but it may not be that it alters 
what you ultimately decide. They're supposed to to provide some guidance. For example, staying on the age criteria, there is a um, a minor red flag for onset before the age of 20, which is okay in and of itself in that MS is disease primarily of young adults. But if you see someone below the age of 20 who comes in with a presentation that's very typical of MS, then that minor red flag has little importance. For example, and this is pointed out in the paper, an individual who's 18 years old who comes in with a very typical optic neuritis would otherwise fit quite nicely into the clinically isolated syndrome phenomena. Alternately, if they came in with symmetrical white matter lesions on the MRI and they were young, you might want to think more about something like a leukodystrophy. Using your example, if it was someone over the age of 50, one might be a little more concerned about cerebrovascular disease uh, in addition, but if their presentation is otherwise very similar to what one would see in multiple sclerosis in the younger adult population, um, then you've noted the red flag and done your due diligence, but your workup may still lead you to a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. I see. Uh, turning now for a moment to the question of the previously called clinically isolated syndromes, I noticed that, that in this uh, article, the authors have um, specified five different types of clinically isolated syndromes. Why does, why does it make a difference, uh, for example, if you classify something as a, um, as a monofocal uh, clinically isolated syndrome with one or more abnormalities on MRI versus a monofocal clinically isolated syndrome with no changes on brain MRI? The MRI is useful in guiding the, the diagnostic process and, and the prognostic process in the individuals with clinically isolated syndrome. So those that come in with changes on the MRI um, consistent with an inflammatory demyelinating disease are more likely to go on to have another attack than those who have normal MRIs. Similarly, the ones who come in with multiple clinical presentations as opposed to monofocal uh, raise different issues in terms of the differential diagnosis. So one would think differently about an initial isolated optic neuritis with no changes on the MRI from someone who comes in with a presentation of optic neuritis and maybe corticospinal tract dysfunction and many lesions on the MRI. I think in the latter case, it makes it somewhat easier to make the diagnosis. And it also uh, uh, suggests a greater chance of going on and having additional attacks. And there are good prognostic indicators now about the likelihood of another attack based on just the presence or absence of lesions on the MRI. Right. And, and turning to this uh, troublesome type 5 uh, clinically isolated syndrome, the, the patient who comes in uh, carrying his or her MRI that shows changes in the brain that look absolutely typical for multiple sclerosis but who has never had any clinical symptoms whatsoever to suggest uh, central nervous system disease. How, how should the clinician think about that patient or, or approach that patient in the context of this uh, uh, panel's recommendation? So the panel really doesn't provide much guidance for 
that type of what they call clinically isolated syndrome. It's not really clinically isolated. It's MRI isolated. And, and they put it in so that people would start to think about it. There have been subsequent manuscripts, actually some that came out before this one did, who have tried to address this issue of individuals who have solely changes on the MRI, and the MRI was obtained for some other reason. Um, but we still have a long way to go in, or, in trying to determine what the diagnosis is in those individuals and what the prognosis is and what the likelihood is that they'll turn out to have multiple sclerosis or some other uh, underlying pathologic process. I see. The, the panel spent a great deal of time uh, trying to, to help the readers uh, understand how to go about sorting out among classical multiple sclerosis and other entities such as neuromyelitis optica, acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, uh, and transverse myelitis. Why do we really care? Does it really make a big difference that we that we put the exactly correct nomenclature uh, for each of these conditions? Well, it may, um, besides from the fact that it's important to get the diagnosis correct. There are prognostic implications and potential therapeutic implications moving forward. For example, it's sometimes difficult to distinguish between acute disseminated encephalomyelitis and the first attack of multiple sclerosis. And the pediatric neurology demyelinating doctors have come up with criteria for that because acute disseminated encephalomyelitis occurs more commonly in children than it does in adults. Some of that is transferable to adults, but there's still considerable debate about how to distinguish this first episode of ADEM uh, or acute disseminated encephalomyelitis uh, from first episode of multiple sclerosis. Um, at their extremes, they could be very different diseases, but there is a considerable overlap between the two that one can't necessarily sort out at the time of that first attack. Now, if it's acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, other than treating the manifestations of the acute attack, one would not ordinarily continue any sort of ongoing therapy. Whereas if it's the first attack of multiple sclerosis, uh, there's considerable evidence now that if you start treating them as multiple sclerosis at that point in time, you lessen the chances of them uh, going on and having further exacerbations. So there's an importance in distinguishing those. In the instance of neuromyelitis optica, again, the, the diagnostic turf has been changing uh, as individuals learn more and more about the spectrum of diseases that includes classical neuromyelitis optica. And, and this group took the view that that was entity in and of itself, that there may be some similar syndromes within the spectrum that can mimic aspects of neuromyelitis optica, especially um, if they have the antibody to the aquaporin-4 uh, water channel, uh, which serves as a marker with, with reasonable sensitivity and specificity for neuromyelitis optica. But that spectrum has been expanding now where it overlaps considerably with aspects of multiple sclerosis. Neuromyelitis optica, or NMO, has been getting an increasing amount of attention. Uh, I think in the old days we thought it was unusual because we thought that it was a monophasic illness. Now we recognize that NMO occurs with the repetitive attacks. Uh, 
Can, can you explain a little bit more about what the criteria were that the panel decided should be used to make a diagnosis of NML? Well, the, the major criteria were that there be an episode of optic neuritis in one or more eyes, that there be an episode of transverse myelitis, which could be clinically complete or incomplete, but usually associated with radiologic evidence of an extensive, longitudinally extensive spinal cord lesion extending over three or more spinal segments. And there should be no evidence for other systemic diseases such as sarcoidosis or vasculitis uh, or clinically, clinically manifest collagen vascular disorders such as uh, systemic lupus erythematosus or Sjogren's disease or some other explanation for the syndrome. In addition, there were some minor criteria and that was that the, the most recent brain MRI of the, uh, should be normal or show abnormalities not fulfilling the criteria that are used for the McDonald Diagnostic Criteria of Multiple Sclerosis, that there could be nonspecific brain abnormalities. Uh, lesions in the dorsal medulla uh, had been noted as have hypothalamic uh, lesions and that there could be linear periventricular corpus callosum signal abnormalities, but not ovoid lesions and not extending into the parenchyma of the cerebral hemispheres in a Dawson's finger-like configuration. And the last minor criteria was a positive test in the serum or spinal fluid for the NMO IgG aquaporin-4 antibodies. Good. Uh, well, that, that's quite clear. Um, I, I also noticed when I read the article that... Um, the authors uh, tried to help us understand that not all of the presentations for a particular neuroanatomic site, such as the optic nerve, the brainstem, or the spinal cord, would necessarily be equal in, in making one believe that a person might have MS. For example, can you tell us some of the different presentations of a myelopathic syndrome that might favor MS versus a non-MS diagnosis? Well, in MS, the myelopathy comes on in subacute fashion. That would be over hours to days, and in the instance of progressive forms of multiple sclerosis, weeks to months to years. And it usually is a partial myelopathy or myelitis. That is, it is not truly transverse, cutting across the entire spinal cord, um, and when it occurs as an acute exacerbation, um, there's often uh, a reasonable degree of recovery, and the longitudinal extent in multiple sclerosis is usually less than three vertebral segments. Um, in other conditions, such as spinal cord infarct, you would expect the deficit to come on much more rapidly um, and follow a more vascular pattern. In compressive lesions of the spinal cord, it would be a slower onset usually uh, and, and more gradual and continuous, although that needs to be considered in the progressive forms of multiple sclerosis. And then, for example, in neuromyelitis optica, the damage to the spinal cord tends to be much more extensive and less likely to um, recover. So it's really important not only for the clinician to consider what the anatomic area is, but what are, in fact, the details of those presentations. So I want to thank uh, Dr. Lublin for sharing his insights uh, with us today.
uh, you've certainly answered most of the questions of, that I've had about this uh, important paper and helped us understand how better to make the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. Now let's open this up for questions from our listeners and provide them the opportunity to uh, query uh, our discussant. While we're waiting to take audience questions, I'd like to let our audience know that there are additional online resources at www.neurosciencecme, that's N-E-U-R-O-S-C-I-E-N-C-E-C-M-E dot com. At the conclusion of this Q&A session, you will automatically be redirected to this site. I encourage you to take advantage of this evidence-based resource. So I think our lines are open and uh, we're ready for, for questions. And just a reminder to our phone participants, if you do have an audio question, simply press the star and one on your touchtone phone. And a reminder that we can take email questions uh, as well. So, Dr. Lublin, a, a primary care physician in North Carolina has asked uh, if you could provide some more information about helping us decide about treating patients once they have been diagnosed. Well, treatment issues were not discussed in this article. Um, it's nearly impossible to provide advice as to who and when to treat in this context. Uh, in very general terms, we treat people with active multiple sclerosis with one of the agents, and we also treat individuals who have had a single attack of what looks like the first attack of multiple sclerosis, even though we can't diagnose them at that point. Uh, but if they have a typical presentation and have abnormalities consistent with MS on their MRI scan, we would treat them as well. But that's a very individualized uh, decision. All right. And Dr. Loveland, a physician from Virginia writes that he or she recently saw a patient with positive changes on MRI but not having any other symptoms. Is there data to show that early subsyndromal treatment can prevent disease? Can it, can it improve outcomes? So that's what is referred to in this paper as clinically isolated syndrome type 5, or um, more colloquially, the radiologic isolated syndrome. This is individuals who have abnormalities on an MRI scan that look like multiple sclerosis, but the MRI scan was not done for any reason that related to multiple sclerosis, but rather for some other reason, such as a bump on the head or or a bad headache or such, and then they show up having a scan that looks like it should be multiple sclerosis. We don't know yet what to do with those individuals, other than we're now classifying them. Um, there are no data to guide us on which of these people to treat and when to treat them. Uh, at present, we follow those scans to see if they change, um, but more information is badly needed in this area. 
A physician from Los Angeles wants to know that whether when a patient presents with symptoms, do you immediately order an MRI or CT? Well, if you're thinking about multiple sclerosis, um, CT scans are not very useful. The MRI is extremely sensitive to the lesions of multiple sclerosis. So if one is concerned about that or concerned about how best to work up the initial symptoms, usually an MRI is an appropriate step. One of our colleagues from Florida voiced surprise that age is a minor red flag and wants to know if you would explain that rationale again. Well, classically, multiple sclerosis has been a disease of young adults. However, over the past oh, 15 to 20 years, there's been a number of, of studies published of multiple sclerosis with onset in an older age group, older meaning over the age of 50. And it turns out to be about 10% of cases uh, come in over that age, and we've seen people well into their 60s and even 70s. It's not common, but with our MRI scans, we've become more sensitive to the fact that MS can present in this older age group. In addition, we've always known that MS can present in a pediatric age group. More recently, uh, through the National Multiple Sclerosis Society and other agencies, there's been um, efforts to try and, and better characterize and quantify the onset in the pediatric group. And it turns out that although not common, MS does occur in children of almost any age, uh, although most commonly in, in teens. Um, someone has uh, asked about whether or not there are any psychiatric implications, and if so, what, whether the course of treatment is the same. That question is a little bit unclear to me. I, I suppose they want to know whether psychiatric implications uh, or psychiatric symptoms might be a presenting symptom or considered in this um, CIS paradigm. In terms of presentation of MS, it's uncommon for it to present with any of the usual psychiatric syndromes. Having said that, depression is much more common in MS than it is in the general population, and even in the population of other chronic illnesses, uh, suggesting that perhaps there's something organic in that increased incidence. But we don't use that as a diagnostic criteria for multiple sclerosis. It does have potential treatment implications because, A, it should be treated, and it usually responds well to the usual agents that psychiatrists employ for treatment of depression. Um, there have been some concerns with using interferon in individuals who have depression. The clinical trial data is a little murky on this, with some suggesting there may be a signal and others suggesting that, that there is no signal for depression. But it's something that one ought to know about in terms of general management of the patient. And I think there is some concern that uh, in some patients that seem to have the so-called radiologically isolated syndrome, that some of them may actually already have some cognitive abnormalities so that they're not totally asymptomatic. Uh, some of our uh, listeners have expressed some interest in uh, neuromyelitis optica, and one physician asked whether there are any specific antibodies in the spinal fluid that can separate MS from NMO. Uh, there is an assay for the aquaporin-4 
uh, IgG on spinal fluid. Um, I don't think we have as much information on the value of that in making the diagnosis as we, as we do for the serum assay. So we'll need to get more information from the folks doing research in that area. And then uh, a follow-up question that someone has asked is whether or not the optic nerve examination as performed, for example, with uh, optical coherence tomography, OCT, can help distinguish uh, optic neuritis in MS from that in NMO. There is some work on this, um, but I don't know what the results are. Do okay. you remember? Um, no, I don't. Uh, maybe bet between now, if you send your question in over the next two weeks via email, we can try to look that up. Uh, are there any other CSF studies that will help distinguish NMO from MS in patients who are NMO IgG negative serologically? None that are diagnostic. Uh, one's more likely to see oligoclonal bands and multiple sclerosis than you do in NMO. Uh, one's more likely to see higher cell counts overall in NMO than you do in multiple sclerosis. One's more likely to see neutrophils in the spinal fluid uh, in NMO than you would in multiple sclerosis. Very good. Um, one of our listeners uh, is wondering whether the, the red flag criteria uh, uh, would differ among different age groups? Yes, the red flag criteria could differ, and so that's why the red flags have to be taken within the context of, of a given individual's presentation. Um, and so once you have a given age group involved, then the red flag over age wouldn't necessarily be of importance. But there are things that are more commonly seen in children than in adults, for example, genetic and inherited diseases. So age always has to be a consideration. This next question is a little bit off the, the topic of, uh, of the paper, but uh, perhaps you might address it anyway, uh, since it's a concern for this particular listener. In fact, uh, he or she had a few questions. First of all, um, he wondered about the uh, ongoing study uh, looking at the use of estriol in multiple sclerosis. Um, well, there's there are some preliminary data that high doses of estriol <coughs> excuse me, may be of value um, in treatment of multiple sclerosis. And this is being tested in a um, randomized clinical trial, but we'll need to see more of their results before we can say much about it. Okay. Uh, also, um, that same listener was wondering about psychiatric issues and treatment for emotional lability and asked particularly about the, the use of lamotrigine, which I know, of course, would be an off-label usage in multiple sclerosis. Uh, so I don't I don't know of data with lamotrigine. There is an agent that's being explored um, for the treatment of that specific indication for pseudobulbar affect. Um, and uh, I'm looking to see if I can find the generic name of that agent. So it's a, it's a combination of dextromethorphan and quinidine. Um, and there are some trials suggesting it could be of value. Okay, going back to the, the red flag issue, um, 
one uh, listener I think is a little bit unclear about exactly how that scoring uh, was developed because um, the listener asked, could you please brief us about the scoring standardization used to make the classification and then asked how many subjects were analyzed to make these criteria. I think probably not realizing the fact that this was a, really a consensus opinion and it wasn't the wasn't based on a scientific analysis of specific patients, but maybe you could clarify that further. No, it's exactly exactly what you said. This was consensus scoring by the members of that particular subgroup who looked at the red flags and they graded them um, with a score of, of uh, from one to five, um, where a major flag was considered a rating of four or five, and then they took the consensus opinion. So the major red flags scored the highest, and um, the minor red flags scored the lowest, and the intermediates were suggested that there wasn't consensus. Um, a primary care physician in North Dakota asked whether we felt these red flags are in alignment with guidelines. I, I'm not quite certain what specific guidelines uh, the physician had in mind, but, but he or she also asked, how you see clinicians using these red flags or, or flags anyway so the, the the paper and specifically the the red flags were designed to complement the diagnostic guidelines for multiple sclerosis. The diagnostic guidelines for multiple sclerosis allow you to come up with a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, not multiple sclerosis or possible multiple sclerosis, but always with this caveat that there be no better diagnosis. The red flags are designed to eliminate the possibility of a better diagnosis. Now here's a kind of intriguing question um, that one of the physicians on the line uh, asked. How frequently do you see recurrent symptoms in a patient's history that were regarded as nonspecific, for example, back pain and headache, that may fall into an, an MS diagnosis after the more typical MS symptoms appear? Uh, neither of those two is particularly characteristic of multiple sclerosis. So I must say most of the headaches I see are in addition to multiple sclerosis rather than being a part of it. Uh, lower back pain can be a consequence of the mechanical problems with multiple sclerosis, more so than a direct effect of the disease itself. Mm -hmm. Okay, and, and certainly uh, we, we do, as MS physicians, see a lot of patients w with pain, uh, especially after the disease is well established, but sometimes there, there are strange pains that even appear early on. It's just difficult to be certain whether or not to ascribe them to, to the MS. Uh, another primary care physician asks the important question about when would would you like uh, to see a primary care physician refer a patient for possible MS? That is, what symptoms or criteria should they meet? Well, if they have symptoms involving the central nervous system, uh, which could include visual loss, uh, extraocular muscle abnormalities, visual coordination abnormalities, numbness, tingling, incoordination, vertigo, dizziness, uh, weakness, uh, bladder dysfunction, sexual dysfunction. Um, any of those should generate a, 
a consideration for a referral. And one of the one of the common problems I think is the patient who who has sensory complaints. And it turns out that sensory symptoms are actually the single most common first symptom in multiple sclerosis, but many patients don't seek medical attention at that point. When I uh, have patients referred to me with sensory symptoms, my, my general rule of thumb is that if the sensory symptoms have been in one particular part of the body, have been present for a day or longer, and have been sufficient to make that patient seek medical attention, they probably warrant a, a workup, including imaging studies. On the other hand, patients who have very fleeting momentary or, or minutes of numbness and tingling that jump around from one part of a body to another, don't persist, don't follow any kind of neuroanatomic pattern, those people are, are unlikely to have real uh, organic neurologic disease, uh, in my opinion, and probably don't warrant a workup. Uh, that same physician expressed concern and wants to know what to do if a neurologist is not available to see a patient for 10 weeks. Is that a reasonable, is it reasonable to wait? Uh, that's impossible to answer. It depends on what's going on with the patient. Right. That I think it's like a long time now. It does. I think really uh, very often a, a phone call to the neurologist explaining your concerns uh, might uh, enable that neurologist to to expedite an appointment if if he gets the impression that you have a legitimate reason for concern, or at least uh, the neurologist can tell on the telephone whether this is something that, that might warrant being, being seen more, click, more quickly. Somebody wants to know whether an immunocompromised state can confound the clinical presentation. Well, it could. Um, there are some infections uh, in immunocompromised individuals that could mimic multiple sclerosis. And this uh, is sort of taken up in the red flags to a degree. Mm -hmm. um, I just want to make sure, uh, operator, that we don't have any calls on the phone line that are that are waiting for us. Well, just a reminder to our participants, if you do have an audio question, star one on your touchtone phone. And it does appear we have a question from the side of uh, Sharon Schoenholz. Call it, please. Your line is open. Um, I'm calling to ask, do you recommend, a, I don't know if this is part of, CME, but uh, do you recommend three Tesla or 1.5 Tesla MRIs? Do you have a preference, and what what are your reasons for it? So the best Tesla you could get your hands on would be fine. Oh yeah. There are you could see more disease uh, in MS on three Tesla than you can on 1.5, but not that much more that if you can't get a three, you should feel that you, you should feel that you're doing the patient a disservice. For the most part, for diagnostic purposes, a 1.5 Tesla unit is is adequate. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I think we had a rheumatologist who's tuned in, who's concerned about a lot of misdiagnosis, and, and he wonders how can we go about educating physicians on how to use these red flags in terms of a, a basis for referrals? Um, have them read the paper. <laughs> I'm not sure I know what more to say. I think um, I think if we could um, get these uh, this this list disseminated 
to people widely, it would be really a um, a a bonanza for for general physicians, uh, primary care physicians, internists, and and community neurologists in sort of guiding their level of concern about the possibility of multiple sclerosis. Uh, it's never, of course, going to um, be useful as an as an absolute indicator. These are meant to be guides to to raise one's uh, levels of concern and make people put on their thinking caps about uh, about what to do. Um, I think there's still a, a little bit more clarifications that's needed on on the immunocompromised state. Uh, does uh, should one regard a state of immunocompromise as a red flag against the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis? It's not impossible to see multiple sclerosis in someone who's immunocompromised, but it is less likely since the the underlying immunopathology of multiple sclerosis, as we currently understand it, involves a hyperactive immune system directed against the central nervous system. And our therapies are directed towards modulating and sometimes suppressing the immune system. So someone who is immunocompromised should theoretically be less likely to have multiple sclerosis, but that's not an absolute. Right. Uh, someone has asked whether radiation therapy to the head or the neck can precipitate the development of multiple sclerosis. That's a tougher question to answer. There are anecdotal cases of MS worsening following radiation, but I don't know of any controlled studies. And I'm not sure it's an answerable question. What do you think, Aaron? Um, well, you know, we know that uh, – I'm not sure about radiation causing MS. We There's some experimental evidence, at least uh, – from the EAE, the Experimental Autoimmune Encephalomyelitis literature, I think that suggests that radiation can exacerbate the symptoms in in areas where there's pre-existing damage. But it's it's a pretty much a you know chicken and egg kind of question. So it, I agree, it's hard to answer that. Um, another neurologist is also perplexed about a lot of misdiagnosis and wonder wonders whether we see that in our practices and whether we have a tool to recommend cl clinicians use. Uh, of course, we see a lot of it, in, in, at least I do, in my practice. Uh, um, that's a lot of the basis of our referrals. Um, and in terms of uh, your comment and a tool that you recommend, uh, Fred? Well, I don't have a tool per se. That's why I'm rather fond of this particular article because I think it goes a long way towards assisting people in, in not missing the diagnosis and not missing other diagnoses. Someone asked whether there are data available to support early intervention even with questionable MRIs. Well, the data to support intervention um, relies on very modest MRI changes. So the studies that have looked at treatment of the first attack have required two or more MRI lesions in the brain that look to be consistent with multiple sclerosis. Uh, so that's a pretty low standard. When one looks at the natural history data from places like uh, Queen Square, uh, the 
diagnostic likelihood of MS uh, changes dramatically with just one lesion on the MRI. So their study showed that over a 14 or more year period, individuals who presented with a typical first attack of like optic neuritis or a brainstem cerebellar syndrome or a partial myelitis uh, and no changes, no abnormalities on the brain MRI had about a 20% chance of having a second attack. Whereas those with one or more lesion on the MRI, that those odds became about 80%. Uh, there have been a couple of questions that have come in related to genetic types of issues. Someone has asked whether there is any are any race or genetic groups that are particularly susceptible to MS, or conversely, I guess we might say resistant to MS. So Caucasians are more are more likely to develop MS than any other racial group. Um, of that, the highest incidence is seen in Caucasians of Northern European ancestry. And of course, um, um, uh, African Americans have a lower incidence of MS, but they tend to have more severe MS. MS is very, very rare in uh, native-born um, uh, black African individuals. Um, it's virtually unheard of. Uh, I'm not sure there are any cases in, in Eskimos. Very rare in purebred um, American or Native Americans. Um, on the other hand, uh, blacks and Hispanics uh, tend to be more susceptible to neuromyelitis optica than they than white cauc uh, Caucasian individuals. Uh, another follow-up on that is uh, about the genetic heritability. Um, would there be increased risk uh, for someone when a, both a mother and a grandmother had MS? There is increased risk um, if MS is in the family. Uh, the risk is better defined for one generation than it is for two. So we expect it to be higher for two generations, but um, I don't know that I could put a number on it. If MS is in a parent or a sibling, then the risk is 20 to the third times greater than the general population. Uh, I expect that if it's in two generations, it goes up from there, but I can't put a number on it. And another important thing is, you know, occasionally we will see conjugal MS, that is situations where both the husband and the wife have MS. In, in that circumstance, the, the risk for, for a child goes up into, into double digits, um, whereas a risk with only a single parent is... Uh, one percent for a son and four percent for for a daughter. Uh, one of the listeners wants to know, Dr. Lublin, whether you would treat a patient who had only one lesion on MRI. Uh, I, I presume that they had a typical clinical picture. Uh, well, if the lesion relates to what brought them in, then no. Um, that is, if they come in with an optic neuritis and the lesions in the optic nerve, or if they come in with a partial myelitis and the lesions in the cervical spine. If they came in with one lesion in addition to what produced their, what I hope would be a typical first attack uh, of MS, we tend to think about those. In general, I might, just because of the queen square data. The clinical trial data had two lesions. 
Uh, but the Queen Square date is 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 fairly impressive. So I, I suspect I would, but I have to think about it a bit. Okay, we're gonna we only have time for one more question, and and it's a little off off the subject of the article, but I think it's very timely. So maybe you can give a quick answer to this questioner who asked whether there are any studies on the use of omega-3 fatty acids and vitamin D or nutritional supplements to try to help treat MS. So um, no, no, and no. The one that's coming the closest is vitamin D. Uh, there, there are studies underway to try and look at its role um, in MS. There's some hints that perhaps there may be something there, but they're just hints just yet, and more studies going to have to be done. Other than that, there are there's there are no data to support any nutritional supplementation. Well, thank you very much. I'd like to thank Dr. Loveland for joining me today, and especially for helping us translate this latest evidence into improvements in practice. Thanks to you, our audience, for joining us today. I know there were a couple of questions that we didn't have time to answer, and if you would um, send them in via email or any uh, others of you who have questions that, that come up after the, the program, you can email these questions to questions at CME Outfitters, that's C-M-E-O-U-T-F-I-T-T-E-R-S dot com, questions at CME Outfitters dot com by February 8th, 2010. Dr. Loveland and I will answer questions online over these next two weeks and post responses at www.neurosciencecme.com slash journal club. I'm Dr. Aaron Miller, thanking you for taking time to join us today. I hope you are able to incorporate this evidence into your practice to improve the care of your patients. Have a good rest of the day. Bye now.